Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. This is another in our series where myself and co-host Laura Weston talk to women about the sports business. Our guest today is Jennifer McLaren, author of a fascinating new book, Fighting Visibility, Sports Media and Female Athletes in the UFC. The book raises important issues about the role of women in sports marketing, the difference between their visibility and the value they receive in return. And we talk about some of the popular tropes of women's sport and the reality of life within the UFC's business model. If you like the podcast, you'll really like the unofficial partner newsletter that goes direct to the inbox of thousands of senior executives across the global sports business every Thursday. To join them, sign up via unofficialpartner.com. Jennifer McLaren, thank you very much for coming on the unofficial part of the podcast. We're uh, we're talking about UFC today. Well, you've written a, a really interesting book, Fighting Visibility, and it's got a very strong resonance for people who are listening to the podcast. Let's just start at the beginning. What's the book about? Give us a, a, a brief summary for those people that haven't got to it yet. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Fighting visibility, sports media and female athletes in the UFC initially just looks at the incorporation of female athletes into the world's largest mixed martial arts promotion. That's how I started it because I was observing this phenomenon happening in 2012, 2013, where the UFC decided to take a chance on female fighters after saying for years and years, never, 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 we're never going to include women in the UFC. And so initially it was a curiosity around why are they doing this now at this particular point in the business's history, in the cultural history, and how effective are they at incorporating women? I was very skeptical at first because I expected them to toe the line in terms of how we've traditionally represented female athletes, which is underrepresentation first and foremost, trivialization objectification. And while the UFC, you could argue that the UFC has done those things to a degree, just like so many other sports organizations, they were doing a really a lot of interesting things around really promoting women in ways that paralleled some of their male fighters. And they were also doing some interesting things in terms of just elevating the visibility of women in combat sports. But that's where I started, but that's not where the book ends because what the heart, the real argument of the book is that while we can celebrate this idea that representation matters, if she can see it, she can be it, all of this women's empowerment in sports discourse, we also have to look below that and say exactly what is happening on the ground for female fighters. Are they actually getting... Are they getting their due? Are they being paid equitably? Are they, what are their working conditions like? And what we have, the situation that we have in the UFC is that women are extremely visible. And in a lot of ways, you could point at a lot of positive representations of female fighters. But what I argue is that visibility does not mean equity. And if you look at how men and women across the board are underpaid in the UFC, but if you look at women in particular, if you look at women of color, if you look at gender non-conforming women, then they're getting paid even less. And so what I argue throughout the book is that 
fans of women's sports, journalists, academics, all of us need to think more critically and not just accept when women are visible in sports that suddenly we've arrived and the fight is over because that's not the case. Nora, what do you think? What's your initial response? Um, it- it obviously makes perfect sense to me. And it, and it's interesting because I, I work a lot with female elite athletes. We have a program through our charity where we have currently 35 elite athletes on our program. We're often talking to them about increasing their visibility, but obviously that comes with at, at a cost. And I think the thing that the overriding impression I always get of sports women is just they are so eager to please and really take on so much responsibility to grow their sport and, and I see that pressure on them it's not they're not only wanting to win for themselves or for their teammates they're wanting to win because they know it's going to further the cause of women's sport and women overall and that's a huge responsibility to take on and so they really they strive for the visibility but they will also take that they will often not understand their own worth when they're doing that they will literally say if a brand approaches them or a school approaches them or anyone says would you come and talk to us about yourself your story your sport they will you know inevitably say yes and taking that pause for thought around okay it is important to grow my visibility but what is my value and actually if I grow my value at the same time that's going to be the double whammy isn't it of making sport more visible and viable because at the end of the day it's about sustainability for women's sport and and increasing the visibility is not going to increase sustainability we're going to continue to have these moments of you know interest and engagement and then they're going to go away again and and that's the number one thing that I always feel so passionate about is is we need consistency and sustainability in women's sport now in in order to to grow it in order to just to pay sports women properly and for them to survive properly (laughs) without having to you know, go from hand to mouth. I think it's really, it, what's interesting to me is I, I love the fact that this evolves the conversation beyond visibility because I, I often feel you can't see it, you can't be it. I, I get frustrated by that now when I hear it, honestly, and, and I hear it a lot <laughs> because of the kind of conversations. You hear it a lot and now it's it's about the substance behind that. And I think that is certainly what I've been working on with our athletes is, is how do we help them not only grow their platform, but also know their worth and help them be paid properly for what they do, which, you know, is going to make the biggest impact, I think. And sports women are so marginalized, you know, across the world. We could look at it in any cultural context, and I would venture that that, that is true. And I think they oftentimes just take what they can get because mm-hmm. they've been so marginalized and women's sport is so undervalued compared to men's sport. But we're also witnessing a moment where, at least for now, and there are ebbs and flows of visibility and ratings, but what we're seeing, at least for now, in especially in the US and you know in the UK and in Australia, we're seeing an increase of viewership. And with that increase of viewership, there is this energy behind it and there is this interest behind it. But I think that sportswomen are still operating under this understanding that they they should just be happy with what they get. And so I think this is, it's more largely a problem of how the sports media industry is structured. And that is, of course, when I'm talking about the sports media complex in particular, I'm talking about sponsorship, I'm talking about leagues, I'm talking about teams, I'm talking about the entire ecosphere that surrounds sports. And I think it's often the case that they'll just take what they can get. And I Mm. think that we need to be really mindful that as 
viewership increases, that the agreements that sportswomen have, that teams have with various other partnerships, that those are equitable agreements. And those are not just taking what we can get because exploitation will happen. And that's part of where I see the application of the book beyond the specific context that I'm looking at is that let's think further ahead than just being visible. Let's think about developing actual sustainability like you're talking about in terms of making sure that female athletes are taken care of in the business dealings that they have. And and do you think, I was just wondering about the agents in the US because I often get approached by our athletes um, because they do want more support, so but they really don't know where to go. I think at the moment, the kind of level of agents who are taking on women, female athletes, I, I honestly believe supporting female athletes, both commercially, whether it's their profile or, or with their deals, takes a different kind of skill set. And there's often, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way at all, because I, I spend a lot of time with these women, is it, they need support because they're not, they haven't had that. They've not been in academies or since the age of eight, they haven't had a sports network around them. So often when they get to that elite level, they're foisted into this area and suddenly people are approaching them. And I've heard some horror stories of, of how they get approached by, you know, just just horrible people trying to exploit them. So I, I'm really keen that they have a, a support network, but at the moment they don't seem to be able to have the right kind of agents that will support them. And I feel like that's a real gap in the women's sport industry. I don't know if that's the same in the US or whether you're more progressed in that. Yeah, and that's not something that I've I've gone into depth in looking at, but I, based on general knowledge, I would say that most of the sports media system is geared is geared towards men. And so women's sport across the board is under-resourced. And if we're looking at agents as resources and the ability of an agent to educate and to, to train an athlete, of course, if they're not aware of how sports women are marginalized, or if they're not aware of the particular barriers that women face in sports, then they're not going to be able to adequately help them navigate a system that isn't built for them. So I think that it is really important that that agents be trained in how to, to best manage and to best educate their athletes in terms of especially business dealings and not fall into the trap. Because I think sometimes not just women, but even even the men that work with them or the the professionals that work with them, men or women, they also take what they can get in terms of it because they understand the system is that women aren't making as much money, for example. So I think that is a really important point. In your book, you talk about Ronda Rousey and Ronda Rousey is someone who I don't follow UFC, but I know her and she's famous and she became famous very quickly and had a large profile. What were the assumptions about the audience before her? Did she change people's view of women in MMA or in combat sports generally? I know there's obviously been women fighters before, but she's just someone who dominates when you talk about UFC and women. Her role is significant. Can you tell us a little bit about her and how she appeared and what relationship her fame and her wealth and money that she generated from the UFC, how that helps us illustrate the story? Absolutely. So, of course, she was extremely key toward in, in getting female fighters into the UFC. And part of it was because there were other great female fighters and there were other fighters that had a degree of the 
the various qualities that you need to create a superstar in terms of uh, charisma, in terms of athletic talent, in terms of for women, it's attractiveness is very important, even for men to a lesser degree, but all of these factors combined in Ronda Rousey. But not only that, is that she came along in a particular cultural moment here in the US and I I would venture worldwide in, in a lot of different locations. This idea of women's and girls empowerment became particularly popular in the mid uh, 2010s. And there was a lot of famous women that were coming out as feminists. Beyonce had concerts where she had the feminist, the word feminism up on the screen. And Emma Watson gave a a speech at the UN that was really resonated with a lot of people. And even women that didn't necessarily take on the moniker of feminism really attached to this idea of women's and girls empowerment in, in a lot of different arenas of life. And so Rousey came along at the time at the height of that. And prior to Rousey coming in, when they first decided to take on this experiment, they thought they just assumed that Rousey would be more popular with men than women. This is the USC that I'm talking about because I interviewed a few marketing professionals within the UFC and they really didn't think about marketing her to women initially. And what happened is as she got more popular, once they started looking at their data, they were realizing that she was more popular with women than with men. And so they adapted how they were advertising her to attach to this idea of women's and girls empowerment. So if you see, once they started realizing that some of the ads started changing around her and really focused on that message. And it was a very powerful message that a lot of people could get behind because it wasn't just women and girls, but it was just a message that a lot of, a lot in the audience could buy into. And of course, she had all these star qualities, like I I talked about, you know, initially in terms of she's very charismatic. She is able to be very with fighters. One of the things that they have to do to promote their fights is is really play up the drama and play up the conflict. And that's something that she was able to do. She was able to do that kind of professional wrestling style drama to, to generate intrigue. And she also had an, an, just an interesting life story. And all of those things combined to where it proved to the UFC that women could make them a lot of money. And she did. She was the highest paid female or she was the highest paid athlete, male or female in 2015 in the UFC. And they have since, because of that success and because of the way it went into the mainstream, because this, like you said, Richard, you don't, you're not familiar really with the UFC, but you did know about Ronda Rousey. And I think that's true for so many people. And so once they realized that was possible, then they started, of course, investing more into their women's divisions. And none of the women that they've had since have been able to get to that level of pay and to get to that level of sort of household name status, but it proved to them that it was possible. And that sort of, that changed the game. There's two things going on here, the popularity and the viewer numbers, the data is becoming, you can feel the argument changing. You hear the argument changing and the evidence is growing. And at the same time, you've got a sort of marketing environment, which is putting a high value on brand purpose campaigns. And they want to stand for something. They want to talk Mm. about the why. We want to 
not just sell shoes or we don't want to just be a bank. We want to be something more than that. And so you can see that straight away when you're looking at sports sponsorship through that lens, it becomes, okay, that's a useful marketing story and I'm building an emotional story here and that should play well for women's sport. And one of the things that myself and Laura talk about on this podcast quite a bit is that gap between the marketing noise and the reality of the value in terms of the on the women's side. What do you think about that? Because if I'm in charge of a big marketing budget, I can see actually a women fighter who has attained a certain level of fame. That becomes much more in some ways. There's more to that story than there is perhaps to a male counterpart. And I think one of the things that I noticed about your book was that what you're saying is essentially the women are carrying more of the marketing load. They are doing more of that work because you're broadening the brand of the rights holder and then associated with the sponsors as well. Do you think there's something in that in terms of just the way in which that sort of brand purpose movement is playing into this? Oh, absolutely. And I think Laura alluded to this in the beginning when we first started talking about how female athletes often see they see their participation in sport as beyond themselves because it's more of a cause. So there is this growing movement within women's sports that really views women's sports as a cause that brands can then connect themselves to that cause because there is this drive on social media. For example, fans are often encouraging other fans to watch women's sports because this is how change happens. This is how you show sponsors that these sports matter to you and that you want to watch. And I think brands are also picking up on the ways that can motivate particularly the audience bases that tend to watch women's sports, because at least in the U.S., the audiences that tend to watch women's sports are more progressive and more and lend themselves more to supporting issues like women's rights or LGBTQ rights. And what brands are picking up on is that in order to reach that particular that particular audience demographic is that you need to attach yourself to to sports to women's sports in a way that is furthering the cause. So brands will do things like for example secret deodorants with the US women's national soccer team came in and paid the players part of what they weren't getting paid for US soccer for example and they advertised that they put that out there and showed how they were supporting that team even though US soccer wasn't supporting them in that same way. And we've seen that in other types of sports. And more recently, the Calm app, which I don't know if you have in the UK, but it's a Mm. meditation sleep app that's very big. And they actually, when Naomi Osaka pulled out of the French Open just this past Mm -hmm. week, they actually said that they would pay the fines of any athlete that pulled out of any major for, um, or the tennis player, that pulled out of any major for mental health reasons that they would pay the fine. So you can see the way that sponsors are positioning themselves as advocating for athletes or advocating for issues like something like mental health, uh, particularly because Osaka is a woman of color. So this plays really well, especially in Generation Z demographics and in millennials too. And that's part of what I talk about in the book is that millennials as a market demographic tend to be more open to the world. They're more interested in supporting issues of diversity and they, and Gen Z is following that trend. And so 
it makes good business sense. But again, what I'm really arguing in the book is that's all well and good. And it seems like really great progress because it seems like we're supporting a good cause. We need to make sure that the athletes are benefiting from that as well. And it isn't just this sort of surface level in order to have positive brand association that the athletes are actually gaining from that messaging. And what I'm showing in the UFC is that they're really not. And that's, it becomes a cautionary tale for other sports and other types of business associations within sports, because I don't want to see this progress at a superficial level. I want to see it actually impacting female athletes. I want it to, there to be progress in terms of how they're getting paid, how they're getting treated and all of those things. That makes so much sense. I, I really struggle having sat in a lot of creative reviews in the advertising world with women being seen as a zeitgeist point. It's almost, oh, women are quite you know hot right now in the terms of that they're relevant at the moment. We should try and hook into that. It's such an awkward thing. But then when you see those, what essentially are PR stunts, that they, they are quite superficial and they're headline grabbing. People are very quick to um, celebrate them and to, to give them recognition. And, and I've seen a number in, in the UK, for example, there was one when, you know, they changed the name of a pub from the Red Lion to the Red Lionesses to celebrate the, the England women's football team. Great, but, but again, it feels very superficial to me. There was one that was less to do with sport, but they changed the, the name of Burger King to Burger Queen for the day. And everyone was just going, this is the most amazing marketing thing I've ever seen. And for me, I felt like I was just on my own in that I saw it. And I was just like, God, that's just awful. I just, because I, maybe because I'm on the cold face of talking to these athletes week in, week out. But I was like, that is not going to help anyone. Advertising creatives, you know, giving themselves a slap on the back about essentially a wordplay. It is not going to further the cause of, of, of women's sport or women. And, and okay, I don't want to get, get all right on in terms of everything has to have massive, you know, I don't expect them to put less, massive investment into it or whatever, but I think having some authenticity to go a little bit deeper than that surface to really understand what they're doing and why, you know, is that really too much to ask? And, and should we really be celebrating that in the way of this is the best kind of creative that we can get? Because for me, that's, that doesn't tick any boxes personally about it. Maybe mm-hmm. back in tw- the beginning of the, the, the 2010s, or as you say, even in 2015, when this was all emerging. But certainly now, when diversity and inclusion is much higher up the agenda, brand purpose is higher up the agenda, it, it feels so wrong and inauthentic to me that brands would just ca- try and capitalise in that way rather than really you know, going in it to say, actually, yes, let's go into this for three, four, five years and actually see what difference we can make. Because... The reality is if they could even just put a bit of investment, a bit of investment in women's sport goes a long way to supporting these women and to supporting the the sort of ecosystem. So it's incredibly frustrating to be seen as that kind of cultural zeitgeist point, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. And the other thing I would say is that if you talk to women's sports historians, and I, I go to a lot of conferences that are are global in terms of the academics that, that are coming through and they're studying sports in a lot of different locations. And you talk to them and they're very skeptical of this moment because they can point to other moments in women's sporting history 
before that have really felt like that zeitgeist, have really felt like in the moment, like things were changing. Now everything has changed, though it's a watershed moment. So for here in the U.S., it's it was one of the examples that we give is the 1999 Women's World Cup team that really spurred the popularity of women's football in the United States. And everybody, if you look at the interviews with the players, they were like so hopeful that everything was going to change in that moment. And they tried a women's professional soccer league here in in the United States that ended up failing a few years later because that attention, that interest, that excitement waned. And while it still does have a cultural resonance and has a bearing on on the popularity of the sports in, in the U.S. now, it didn't do what we had hoped. And so every so many years, we have these moments like we're in right now where the interest peaks, but the investment doesn't really peak. And so what I'm skeptical of in terms of these branding moments where they connect the brand to this cause in a very superficial way doesn't actually play out in terms of the long-term strategy that needs to be there in order to really grow women's sports. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have the same level of, of when I hear people getting really excited about something like, like the examples that you gave, I'm of course very skeptical as well, because it doesn't I'm like, what is it? What does it do <laughs> to my changing okay. to Bur- Bur- Burger Queen? Okay, great. <laughs> I, that makes me feel no optimism at all. <laughs> Pursuing that, then, if we move away from the marketing angle for a moment, what did you learn about a fighter's life? How they make money as fighters, and what is it about their contracts that you've picked up from around the UFC? UFC fighters are independent contractors. So this means that when they sign on with the UFC, they are committing to a series of fights. It might be, I think oftentimes it's about three fights. And what that means is that they're paid per fight and they typically get what's called show money. So just showing up for the fight and being on weight and ready to go for the fight. And then if they win, they also get a certain amount of money. All of these are negotiated individually with UFC athletes. The contracts are very lopsided in that they do favor the UFC to a much greater degree than they favor fighters. For example, the UFC can eliminate a contract pretty easily if they want to, but a fighter is is stuck under contract. So if a fighter fights two, two of their three fights on their contract, the UFC is under no obligation to then book them another fight. And that fighter is then attached to them. And one of the stipulations of the contract is that they cannot then go and fight for another promotion, an MMA promotion or a boxing promotion or, or anything like that. So they effectively can hold on to that fighter for an indefinite amount of time without giving them any source of income through the UFC. So that's the the contract piece. And then there is also the UFC pretty much has, there are other MMA promotions, but the UFC is the largest and the UFC is, can pay the most money, even though if you compare it to boxing, they're not paying very much. Part of the problem is too, is that because they're independent contractors and they're paying, those fighters are paying for so much of the business of getting ready for a fight and actually executing a fight. If you are a professional soccer player or you're a professional American 
American football player, then you are, you have a contract, but you're a salaried employee. That means that you have health insurance year round, you have retirement benefits, you have, you may have health insurance for several years after you finish your time in whichever sporting organization it is. But in the UFC, they actually don't have year round health insurance and they only have basically like accident insurance for something that would happen in a fight itself. And they don't have retirement benefits. And they also are paying their own trainers. So they have to pay a certain amount of whatever they get from the UFC. Usually that's negotiated with their trainers, their coaches, for they get a percentage of that. And it's hard to tell specifically across the board what those averages are because they do vary. But most fighters that I spoke to said it's somewhere around 10 to 15% for your coaches of whatever you get from the UFC. And then you have to pay, of course, your management team. And depending on what kind of management you have, those are negotiated in a variety of different ways. And there are no laws preventing exploitation when it comes to that. And there are, you have a higher burden, like in the US, you have a higher burden of taxes if you're an independent contractor. And then various countries around the world that you might fight in also have their own tax laws that they have to, that fighters have to deal with. So you might be taxed more or less in any given country that you fight in. So once you take all of that out and the fighter also has to go into a fight camp, which is somewhere around six, eight, 10 weeks, it depends to prepare for a fight. And when they're doing that, it's harder to work other jobs. And so they're basically having to spend a lot of money to get ready for a fight. Let's say they show up for a fight and their opponent doesn't make weight, then the fight is off and the UFC doesn't, isn't able to get them another fight then the UFC has no obligation according to the contract to pay that fighter. Some states in the U.S. require that they do pay them for just showing up. But worldwide, of course, it's different everywhere. And a fighter could go through all the work of prepping for a fight and not actually get that money at the end of the day. And so there's also another issue with this independent contracting, according to U.S. classifications of what an independent contractor is, that there's too much control in the U.S. Look at a lot of legal briefs at analyzing this. And basically, in order to be an independent contractor, you do have to have a lot of determination over who you work for and when. So, for example, if you're a painter and you paint let's say you work for a large paint company and they tell you where to work and when, and you have to wear their uniform and you have to drive their van, let's say. If you are an independent contractor and you're a painter, you get to decide what your contracts, which contracts you're going to follow. So maybe you have this house over here, you have this office building over there and you wear whatever you want, you drive whatever you want. The UFC doesn't really fit within that classification of independent contracting because they determine when their fighters fight and they have exclusive contracts. So they're not, those fighters are not then able to have a fight somewhere else and make money in their profession. They can make money doing waitressing jobs or they can make money doing personal training or coaching or things like that, which a lot of fighters do, but they are, they are limited in terms of, of their ability. And they're also required to wear uniforms that are sanctioned by the UFC, which the UFC actually makes more money on than fighters do in terms of how the sponsorship works. And so there's a lot of, of issues in terms of it being, it's actually very lucrative. That's a very lucrative business model for the UFC because they don't have to invest in their fighters. 
So they, they minimize the risk of, because fighting is a very risky business because it's very hard on the body. People get injured and they're putting that risk onto the fighters rather than investing in the fighters. And mm-hmm. that's really where I, in the book is one of the things that I'm really arguing needs to be revised because while it's a quote unquote good business model in terms of the UFC's revenue itself, the reason, part of the reason that they're making so much money is that they're not paying the fighters very much overall. And they do not have the responsibility overall to their fighters in terms of making sure that they're paying for their health insurance and making sure that they're, these fighters are, are risking their, their brains to head injuries and they don't have long-term sort of plans to take care of those fighters once they're done. So there's almost a sort of gig economy aspect to that, isn't there? Absolutely. And that's how I contextualize it within the book is part of the reason that this is so sanctioned culturally is that we have really attached ourselves, particularly in the United States. And I think a lot of the world has attached themselves to this gig economy model because it means that businesses can make a lot of money because they don't, they're not having to pay for their workers in the same way if they were salaried employees, if they were full-time with benefits So it's taking all of those costs out and making them expendable so that if you, because if you're investing a lot into a particular person, then they're not as expendable. You want to make sure that they are healthy. You want to make sure that they can continue to do their job. Whereas if it's a fighter who's an independent contractor or some other laborer in the gig economy, like driving for Uber or something like that, you can always get more people to do that. It's very easy. There's a ready supply. And it's the same for the UFC. There's always fighters trying to get into the UFC because there's really no other paralleled organization for MMA. So it's the pinnacle of MMA. And so you have a lot of people that are willing to give it a shot in the hopes that they can do well and make money, but very few actually do. And even the ones that are making the most money are looking at boxing promotions and going, wow, how are these other organizations making so much money? Because there was just an exhibition fight between Floyd Mayweather and a YouTuber named one of the Paul brothers. I can't even remember which Paul brother it was. Just happened last night. And the YouTuber made 20, 20 million off of an exhibition fight. And so UFC fighters are looking at that now going, wow, like where is all this money? Because there's a lot of money in the fight business, but it's just not getting allocated to fighters. And what I'm arguing in the book is that women are have more of a burden there and have more issues in terms of, because they're not actually getting paid. If you take Ronda Rousey out of the equation, there's no evidence that they're getting paid what men are getting paid. The UFC is notoriously guarded on their, their financial situation. So it's hard to prove it, but the evidence that we do have suggests that women are, are underpaid uh, compared to men. So. And presumably they're not allowed then to seek individual sponsorships on top of whatever, because so that, that would always be a sort of supplementary income, wouldn't it, to have your sort of individual sponsorships. And also, I imagine, not being able to say what they want as well. It must be quite controlled from a media relations point of view of what you can and can't say. You can't really build your own profile or be known for something you know, specific or, you know, because they're all roots to commercial gains in growing yourself as a role model and as a a person that can get invested with for for brands but if you're under that level of control 
then I presume you're not able to do that. So it's literally all the, the cards seem to be stacked against you, really, because there's nowhere for you to go. It, that must be so frustrating for them. I will say that actually, so fighters can seek individual sponsorship if it's not a logo that they're wearing while being filmed by the UFC. So right. originally, and if you look at other fight promotions, this is how it works. So prior to the mid 2010s, UFC fighters could wear whatever they wanted in, in the octagon. So they could wear sponsored, they would have sponsored content all over their uniforms. So whatever sponsorship they needed to negotiate that their management negotiated for them. And they that was a way for them to make money. And they had individual agency over that. And then the UFC brokered a deal first with Reebok and that all went away in terms of they could no longer broker their individual deals for, for UFC sponsored events. Basically they had to wear Reebok and that changed a lot of income for a lot of fighters. And they, they lost money because Reebok would pay them a little bit of money. But when they were first starting out, it had to do with how many fights um, a fighter had in the UFC. And so because women had just been included in the UFC, I think this deal happened around 2015, but because women had just been included, then they were in the low end of the sponsorship tier for Reebok because they hadn't had as many fights in the UFC. So they were automatically starting at a disadvantage. And now their sponsor is Venom, but it's pretty much the same deal in terms of you can have sponsors on, let's say, for example, there's a lot of fighters that have sponsors that they promote on Instagram. And so they become, a lot of them are micro influencers because they don't have a huge amount of following. And so they have a lot of small brands. And so there's a lot of hustle that's happening that fighters trying to get visibility so that the UFC takes notice because again, the UFC doesn't have any, if they're under contract with the UFC, it doesn't mean that the UFC has to book a fight for them. So part of it is they labor for visibility to get the UFC to take notice because the UFC monitors the social media engagement of their fighters and they, for fighters that are getting more visibility, they'll take interest and, and book their fights. But with when it comes, the, the other reason that, that that fighters will do that is because they're not making that much money. So they need to have that sponsorship in order to in order to make a little bit more money. So there's a lot of hustle that happens. And mm -hmm. part of part of what happens with female fighters, and I talk about in one of the chapters of the, of the book is that they understand visibility as part of the job, they understand social media as part of the job. And that brings up all sorts of issues in terms of how they're going to present themselves online, because they all know that pretty traditionally attractive women are going to make more money on Instagram because that's how Instagram works. That's how the sports media business works, but they don't all feel comfortable with putting like framing themselves in that way. So they're trying to negotiate their own authenticity with how they're promoting themselves online. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, we also know that women get harassed more online than men and women of color, black women in particular get way more harassment. And so they're constantly laboring for that visibility, but they're also paying the cost of that visibility. Mm -hmm. And there's no guarantee that they're actually going to get sponsorships. And there's no guarantee that the UFC is actually going to take notice. So mm -hmm. it's a pretty problematic model that's very aspirational in terms of they're doing a lot of aspirational labor, which is a term coined by a scholar named Brooke Aaron Duffy, who talks about this idea of promoting oneself online and trying to have an online business in a way. And then it's for this idea that visibility will get you somewhere. But a lot of people do a lot of labor and that never pans out in terms of actual 
income to sustain themselves full time. It's one of those frustrating elements of marketing that you really want to speed up this idea that because I, I had it for brands uh, where they would ask us just tell us the top 10 athletes in whatever country by followers and you'd be like but it's not about followers it's about engagement it's about what they stand for it's about and you know you feel like you you know say the same thing until you're blue in the face and and you really want that to people to get it quickly and be like okay so we need to now look at engagement because I, we've got some of our athletes that might have 20,000 followers on Instagram but what they're doing is getting really high engagement and actually we're, we're demonstrating to them telling the them to take that to sponsors and talk about I might only have 20,000 but look at the engagement I'm getting on the post look at you know, how many people girls and women are following me and all that kind of thing and show that's valuable particularly women of 18 to 24 were saying this is a really valuable audience this is who everybody's looking for make sure when you're going back sponsors that you're highlighting these numbers and but again that's a whole new set of skills that you're yes. having to teach it's these labor. women it's labor it's like understanding okay we need to go back into my back end of my instagram and understand you know who's you know and so that is intimidating for people as well but it's a, on top of having to probably work a part-time job or work at, at the same time you're doing that so it just feel i don't want to make this feel because I'm, I'm an optimist but there's a lot that's going on at the moment isn't there that's that is frustrated because you just want people to get beyond the superficial that we're talking about whether it's superficial marketing superficial social media and followers visibility in general has just always been pretty superficial so even to the point I don't know whether this is the same we talked about Rhonda Rousey's kind of the thing where it almost feels like there's only ever space for one or two sports Mm. women to 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 thrive and that's Mm -hmm. one of the things especially when it comes to diversity we're trying to really push with with the media here is if you're going to speak to three athletes we we, why don't you speak to one of our black athletes why don't you speak to one of our disabled Mm -hmm. sport athletes Uh, you know make sure that we're being quite proactive around diversity rather than always just putting the giving space for one voice because often the one voice they will choose if you give them a list of athletes is the one that's most well-known or the one that's got the most followers. And again, it's like education every single time to the media that, mm-hmm. okay, that might be the case, but have you heard the story of this athlete here? They've got a mm-hmm. you know, phenomenal story, got so much to share. Actually, mm-hmm. they could really speak on this issue you know, a lot better than the other athlete just because you've got more followers. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really difficult scenario, but I think you have to be so purposeful now about really pushing those diverse role models and making space for more than just one at a time which yeah that would seem to be the case <laughs> yeah and I think and I think that's very really telling that we're still in this moment where you can have one major female athlete at a time mm-hmm. really yeah. and yeah. then everybody and, the, and that athlete tends to make a lot of money because for a while it was Serena Williams and now it's Naomi Osaka and mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons why you know Oftentimes, the women that make the most money as athletes are in tennis because mm-hmm. it has to do with sponsorship. It has to do with how those games are broadcast. It has to do with a long history of activism on the part of the players. Mm-hmm. But but why is it so hard to spread it around? Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit more. Why does it have to be the one? And that is really telling because I think because women are still so marginalized Mm. and relatively invisible, if you're looking at it across the board in in terms of mass media globally, specifically, then women are, are, are relatively invisible. Of course, mm. once we start getting into more niche sports environments and you have you throw in social media and then you get your fan followings that are very sort of nicheified, then there is more visibility within those spaces, but it's it, it is 
it is a broader system. And, and part of what I'm talking about in the book too, is that it's not just about the UFC. It's an entire ecosphere of how things work that create conditions where exploitation is possible and that women have to labor really hard for visibility and they're not getting, they're not really, they're not benefiting from the labor of that visibility, mm-hmm. not to the degree that they should. Okay, listen, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed that conversation. Just so, just to point listeners to where they can get the book, where is it? The normal places? All the normal places have it. So we do have, we do have access internationally. It's called Fighting Visibility, Sports Media and Female Athletes in the UFC. Okay. And thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Laura, as ever. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. 